Happy Mother's Day to the mom. It's a traditional day set aside especially for calling attention to our mothers and honoring them. Uh, set up in the early 1900s. But thousands of years before that, where God said, honor your father and your mother. And uh, in Leviticus, it says, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. And Paul echoed that in Ephesians 6. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And the children of the amazing Proverbs 31 mother rose up and called her blessed, it says in the 28th verse, and her husband also, and he praises her. You know, it's pretty hollow to say Happy Mother's Day and give a card or a gift, some flowers, but not honor her in action or in word or attitude. Uh, and, and not just on Mother's Day, but year-round. Uh, being a mother is a challenging, full-time job, even on good days, in the best of times. And we should all honor our moms. Very few people have cared for us like our mother, maybe our father, our spouse, hopefully. And uh, we should really honor and respect them for all they do for us. And we shouldn't say, uh, you know, you're not perfect, but if one day at least we don't, we shouldn't say that. We should uh, appreciate Moms already know that, and we should just appreciate and respect them for all the things they do right and all the sacrifices that they give to be our mothers. This morning, I want to look at uh, five mothers from the Bible and uh, note some lessons and encouragement for mothers and for all of us, I believe. And uh, I think all of these are familiar stories, so I will not even turn to them this morning unless you want to. Um, The first one is Hannah in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where this begins. And we've heard that story about little Samuel in in, in the tabernacle since we were very small. And as we got older, we picked up more details about his mother and her life. And she was really a remarkable lady. Just to review a little what was going on, Hannah was in an unfortunate marriage situation in that there was a second wife, a Penina. And that wasn't uncommon in those days. But it almost always introduced jealousy and conflict, and this was the case here. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, he loved Hannah more than Penina. And that was a very sore spot for Penina. Penina had children, and Hannah was barren. And that was a very painful spot for Hannah. 
And Penina looked for opportunities to provoke Hannah and make her life miserable. And one such opportunity was uh, on their annual visits to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship and offer sacrifices. And with genuine affection, uh, Elkanah would give Hannah a double portion uh, at the sacrificial meal. And that was a great annoyance to Penina. And she would goad Hannah, I don't know how all, but she would, would really make it hard for Hannah. And so instead of it being a joyful occasion of worship and praise, it was miserable for Hannah. And I, I expect it was for the rest of them in the family, too. And one year, uh, Hannah was too upset to eat, and Elkanah made a clumsy effort to uh, console her. And he said, am I not better to you than ten sons? After the meal, she was praying near the entrance of the tabernacle. And it says in verse 10 that she, in the first chapter, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And as she kept praying silently and her lips moving, the priest Eli thought she was drunk, and he admonished her about it. But she said, No, my Lord, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit, and uh, I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And Eli changed his reproof to a blessing. Go in peace, he said, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And Hannah was encouraged. And she went on her way, and in due time, uh, there was a son born in their home, and his name, she named him Samuel. And I'm sure she was remembering her vow, and thought about it often, no doubt. In those first years after he was born, uh, she stayed home with Samuel while the rest of them went to Shiloh, to the tabernacle. But when Samuel was weaned, maybe three years or so old, then Samuel and Hannah went along again, Hannah bracing herself to leave little Samuel at the tabernacle with Eli. I can't imagine that. I wonder if she felt a little bit like Abraham climbing Mount, er Mount Moriah with Isaac. And when they got there uh, to the tabernacle, she said to Eli, Aging Eli the priest. O oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And actually it means give, given to the Lord. And so they worship the Lord there. And the uh, chapter 2 has Hannah's prayer song, which is a, a beautiful uh, song. It sounds like Virgin Mary in Luke 
uh, 1, or Zachariah's proclamation a little bit. But then in verse 11, uh, Elkanah and Hannah head back home, but the child Samuel was left in Shiloh to minister before the Lord. And the scripture says that each year they came back to Shiloh, and Hannah brought with her a little coat for Samuel, I suppose a little larger each year. And uh, it says that the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And Eli blessed Samuel's parents and said, May the Lord give you descendants for, the offer, for your offering to the Lord. And Hannah had three sons and two daughters following that. Now, the lesson I want to draw from uh, Hannah briefly is that we should offer our children to the Lord. Offer our children to God. They're not given to us for our pleasure as a hobby, just for fun and fulfillment, personal fulfillment. Children are a blessing to a family, but they're a blessing with a purpose beyond whatever they mean and whatever satisfaction they are to us uh, that they bring to us that uh, God has a purpose for them, a holy purpose. So, Psalm 127 says that children are in heritage of the Lord, from the Lord, and like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And arrows are prepared, uh, finely crafted, carefully crafted, for a purpose. And God has placed children in our home to, um, and in our lives, even if we're not parents, to, uh, to bless these children and prepare them as arrows. And in Malachi, where, where God is decrying the unfaithful husbands who divorce their wives, he said that he wanted godly parents. Why? Because he seeks godly offspring. Malachi 2.15 They are God's creation. They're created for God's purpose and work and glory for His kingdom. And we offer them. We think about that. You know, these children are here, but they're here with a purpose. God has a purpose for them, and we want to fill our role in preparing them to accomplish that purpose. Not to be great or famous or something. We don't know that Hannah had any great aspirations for Samuel. Let God decide what service they would uh, be called to, but we offer them to God for His service. So that's a lesson from Hannah. Uh, the next uh, mother is actually a team effort, a Lois and Eunice uh, from uh, Timothy's life, grandmother and mother. And uh, the thought here that I want us to be impressed with is that we should prepare them for God and God's service. 
So in Second Timothy, the first chapter and verse three, uh, it says that Paul writes that he thanks God for Timothy. And jumping to verse five, when I call to, to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. So, Timothy was an outstanding young Christian. In Acts 16, uh, it says that he was well spoken of by the brethren. But before there was a Timothy like this, there was a godly mother and grandmother. And Acts 16 also tells us that Timothy's mother, Eunice, was a Jewish believer, but uh, Timothy's father was, we don't even know his name, was a Greek, a Gentile. Was he not a believer? I kind of get the impression, maybe not. We don't know for sure. Maybe he died when Timothy was very young. Was he unfaithful and disappeared from the family? What griefs and challenges did these godly women face in their lives and in raising, raising Timothy? What we do know is that they were ladies of faith, and they took seriously their duty towards their son and grandson, Timothy. They determined, I believe, not to waste time or opportunities. Uh, they had been faithful Jews from all appearances, who studied the scriptures from childhood themselves. And when Paul came to their town with the gospel, they were ready for it. Lois, the grandmother, first, evidently, and uh, with, with a sincere faith. Did she pass it on to Eunice, or did Eunice respond later? Either way, here was a grandmother and, and a mother with a son with a soul bound for eternity. And not only did they embrace the gospel, they embraced their mission to bring up this son in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So when they explained, when they taught Timothy, and they prayed, and they lived by their godly examples they taught him in such a way that Paul described uh, Timothy as one from a child who knew the Holy Scriptures uh, at the feet of his mother and grandmother. I believe Timothy's heroes were men of God, like David and Gideon and Elijah and Samuel, not, Deli not the Goliath or Zeus or uh, characters from Greek and Roman mythology. Lost and Eunice understood what it says in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And having that in your heart, to convey that in God's command to the children. And you shall teach them uh, diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. They understood how important this was, how eternally valuable it is for a child to have such an opportunity and such an influence in his life. And parents are the first nurturers, but they're not the only godly influences. Grandparents, godly siblings, church family, ministers, teachers, all of those contribute to the life of a child. Every Christian has a ministry to children and young people. A lesson from Lois and Eunice that I already referred to. Nurture your children in God's way, preparing them for God's service. In Psalm 127, I mentioned that a bit ago, but it says there in the first verse, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And we need to remember that as parents. We can do the best, the best we know, the best we can, and put our whole heart into it seriously. But unless we are the Lord, and the Lord is working with us, they labor in vain that build it. I remember years ago, uh, Steve Williams from North Carolina was here one time and met with the men in the school basement over here, and he was talking about um, raising children and our responsibility as dads and so forth. And he said this, that we can fill the water pots with water, but only God, only Jesus, can turn water into wine. That had to happen in Timothy's heart and life and in our own and in the lives of our children. That God has to take that and do something with it. Um, except the Lord builds the house. Except the Lord builds with us. They labor in vain that build it. And that's Mother, I want to talk about is Hagar from the Old Testament. We remember her as Sarah's Egyptian servant. And we remember that Sarah gave her to Abraham as sort of a surrogate wife in a misguided effort to provide the promised son for Abraham, as though they were kind of helping God. But when Hagar learned that she was expecting, she despised Sarah. She looked down. She looked at her with disdain. And Sarah noticed this. It was obvious. And she complained to Abraham about Hagar's attitude. And Abraham left it to Sarah to deal with. And uh, consequently, Sarah treated Hagar harshly, harsh enough that Hagar fled. She ran away. Maybe she was thinking to return to Egypt uh, through the desert some way. But after traveling away, she stopped to rest by a spring of water. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to her. And he asked, where did you come from? What brings you here? Where are you going? 
So Hagar explained what was happening, but the angel told her to return to Sarah and submit herself to her and gave her a prophetic word about her son to come Israel and blessed her. Hagar called the angel, You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees. Have I seen the God who sees me? And she's amazed. And she called that spring where she had stopped the well of the visible God. She was strengthened and encouraged. God sees me. God cares about me. I'm part of God's plan. He has a plan for me. And Hagar obeyed the angel and returned to the tent of Sarah and Abraham, where her son Israel was born. And some years later, actually maybe 14 or so, Isaac was born, and Sarah grew unhappy with Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael could be ornery, it appears, and at Isaac's weaning festivities, Ishmael mocked Isaac and made fun of him. And Sarah just erupted. She would have no more of this. And she insisted that Hagar and Ishmael be forced to leave. And Abraham, after getting direction from God, uh, reluctantly allowed that to happen. And early in the morning, don't know if it was the next morning, but early in the morning, while it was still cool, Abraham gave Hagar a supply of water, a goat skin bag of water, and some food, and sent her and young Ishmael away into the wilderness. And Adam Clark says that the plan would have been to uh, take enough water to go through the desert to reach the next water supply. If that was the case, uh, Hagar must have missed it, or else they didn't ration very carefully because they ran out of water. And being out of water in the desert is a death sentence. And at some point, Ishmael, exhausted with the journey and faint from uh, lack of thirst, he collapsed, crying, and in despair, Hagar placed him under a bush where there was a little shade and went off a little distance from him. She couldn't bear to watch him die. It says that she lifted up her voice and wept. And as, as had happened the other time she went off in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord provided for her needs. And God heard the voice of the lad, it says, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise and lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water 
And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad. A lesson from Hagar, for mom and for all of us, we are never alone. God always sees us. God always sees our children. God said this, uh, the scripture says here that God heard the voice of the lad. Not only did he hear Hagar, he heard her son. God always sees us. God always sees the situation that we're in. And He always cares. Even if we can't see Him. Or see His purposes. Or see His plan. God is there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Psalm 139, You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. I can't get away from you. When when taxed to the limit, regardless of what we are facing, we are never alone. We're never unnoticed. God doesn't take His eye away from us for a minute or two or an hour, and then things fall apart. We're never alone. We're always seen by God. He's involved. He cares. We may not understand. We may not see. But He is there. Except the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. They build it. We need to know and have confidence and faith that God is with us. God sees. God cares. We are never alone. The next one is the Syrophoenician woman that we read about in Matthew and Mark, Matthew 15 and Mark 7. I think I've always heard of her, uh, always referred to as the Syrophoenician woman. But on this Mother's Day, we'll honor her by calling her the Syrophoenician mother. She was a mother. And from there, Mark 7, 24, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. So here we have a lady born a Gentile in the Phoenician part of Syria. We don't know her name. We know nothing of her story, nothing about her background, what growing up was like for her. We don't know if she was ever married, but she had a daughter, a daughter with a desperate need. What kind of a mother had this Syrophoenician mother been? Had her failure contributed to this child's need? Or did the daughter get into some very bad company? We're not told. We don't know. But we do know that this daughter's need 
was also her mother's need. And this mother was desperate to find help. And no matter what had happened before, this mother came to the right source for help. You know, when Jesus came to this coastal area of Tyre and Sidon, uh, this mother knew about, heard about him some way, but I believe Jesus knew about her before he came. And he knew about her daughter. And he loved them both. And I don't think it was a coincidence coincidence that he showed up there. I think one of his purposes for being in that community was to meet this need of the mother and the daughter. Mark says she came to the house where he was and fell out at his feet, crying out and pleading for his help. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And you know how in the story uh, Jesus didn't answer and how she kept on? Lord, help me! She cried. She believed. Uh, Jesus said she had great faith. And that faith was sorely tested here. She kept calling to Him and to the point that, that the disciples urged Jesus to send her away, it says in Matthew. And you remember how the conversation went, how Jesus gently pushed back at her request, and how she responded, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. There is a place for me, there is a place for me and my need here. And Jesus granted her request. And he told her that her daughter was delivered, and she went home and found it was so. And the daughter was in bed, uh, convalescing. A lesson from this Syrophoenician mother. It doesn't matter who we are, who you are, what your name is, where you came from, what your background is, whosoever will may come. You can cry to God in your need. Anyone can cry out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Anyone can call to God, Lord, help me. And never give up. The Syrophoenician mother did not give up. Miracles still happen. Sometimes they're dramatic. Sometimes they're quiet in our own hearts. Our own hearts need adjustment and healing and strength and grace from God in whatever situation we're in. But never give up. Mothers have needs. We all have needs. Sometimes the needs are the everyday things that just pile up and and become increasingly stressful. Sometimes there's great needs that are beyond this normal life. And we need the Lord's help. Except the Lord builds a house. They labor in vain that build it. 
that our Phoenician mother's house felt like it had been hit by a tornado. It needed a lot of help. Jesus was the help she needed. We can always cry out for help to God. And we should. The last uh, mother that uh, wants to look at is Naomi. One of the main characters in the uh, book of Ruth. And the name Naomi kind of figures into this story because it comes from a root word meaning sweetness and light. I'm sorry, delight. Sweetness and delight. And his, we know this story also how during a famine and hard times in Judah, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malam and Chilion, left Bethlehem and went to Moab hoping that things would go better for them there. But it really didn't. In the course of time, Elimelech died. And sometime after his death, Malam and Chilion, the two sons, died. And by this time, they had married two women of Moab. So that left a family of three widows mourning the loss of their husbands. Eventually, Neoma wanted to go back home. She heard things were going better in Bethlehem, and she talked it over with her widowed daughters-in-law, and they started out. And you remember how Neoma decided that it sounded like this came to her after they were on their way. But she decided that it would really be better if these Moabite ladies returned to their own people and not come with her. And it was a cheerful conversation. And Orpah decided she would go back. So she left crying. But Ruth insisted that nothing would stop her from going with Naomi. That she would go wherever Naomi goes. He would stay wherever Naomi stayed. Naomi's people would be her people. Naomi's God would be her God. And where Naomi died, that's where she would die too. So, Naomi fled her son. And in the first chapter of Ruth, it tells about Naomi's return to Bethlehem. It was actually about this time of the year. It was uh, when the barley harvest was underway. And as Naomi and Ruth entered the village, there was a stir. Who is this? Who is this lady? Is this Naomi? Can it be? And Naomi said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Now remember, Naomi means sweetness and pleasantness. Mara means bitter. She said, God has dealt bitterly with me. He has afflicted me. I left 
full, I return empty. Life is not good. God must not love me. But God is good. And God did love Naomi. He had always loved Naomi. And in just a few weeks, she began to see things a little differently. She saw little glimmers of hope. The Lord provided a kinsman redeemer, a provider of security for her. Maybe a little crack formed in her marrow complex. And we know the story how Ruth ended up marrying Boaz and time passed and they had a little child. God was good and merciful. Hear the blessing of the women of Bethlehem to Naomi when they saw what was unfolding here. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor, woman, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And holding Obed close to her breast, I think Naomi's heart was filled with gratitude. God was good. She was loved. She was blessed. She had peace. Mara, no more. The story of Naomi, I believe, is an encouragement for mothers who have lost. After losing her family, it appears she had very little. She was a poor woman returning to Bethlehem. And she had lost her husband, her two sons. She came back poor and sorrowful. She had faith in God. She believed in God. But she saw God as being against her. A little like Job. She had lost so much. But she was learning... She was learning that there was still work and still a purpose for her. She had mentored and counseled Ruth, who was adjusting to an entirely different culture and navigating, helping her navigate through new situations. That had been happening. And when little Obed arrived, she was his grandmother the designated nurse and babysitter. What joy to this lady. The sorrows were still there. The sorrows were not erased, but there was still a reason and still a purpose for her being here. And that's Naomi's lesson. 
Whatever the loss we may grieve over, whether young or old or wherever we are, it may be family members who have passed away. It may be a family member that has taken a seriously wrong turn. It may be remorse for our own failure. Whatever it may be, if we're faithful, we're not losers. Even in our older years, there is still purpose. There's still a mission in life. Still rewards for faithfulness. Even fulfillment and joy. God still prospers and blesses our faithful servants. So we've looked at uh, five mothers in the Bible and noted something that we could learn from each of them. There would have been other things, too. Hannah, we emphasize we need to have the mind that we're offering our children to God. They're His, and He created them for His purposes. Hannah saw that with Samuel. And the team, Lois and Eunice, we saw the importance of Christian nurturing in God's ways and the advantage that they were to Timothy. And Hagar, we're never alone. Wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, God sees us, God cares about us. God cares about our children. God cared about Israel. The Syrophoenician mother, when in need, cry out to God for help and never give up. And Naomi, there's purpose after loss. For the faithful, loss is not the end of the world. And as we look at these women, their circumstances uh, were not ideal for any of them. None of them had ideal circumstances. They all faced difficulty, some very severe trials even. And all the lessons that we looked at applied to all of these women too. And God had a role in each of their mothering, in their heart, in their children's heart. They planted, they watered, and God gave the increase is the way Paul put it in First Corinthians. Except the Lord fills the house, they labor in vain that build it. Mom, you are builders. Anyone who relates to children as a builder, dad, teachers, all of us in the church family. God bless our moms today in their role. We honor them. God is building with them. And God help us all to be builders with Him. Thank you, and God bless you. And I'll turn the time over to our moderators.